Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. scripture reading today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 37, verses 17b to 28. They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now. Let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe that he was wearing, and they took him and threw him in the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him at all. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianites merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Marsha. Good morning. Well, my name is Sean, one of the pastors on our team here. I'm glad to be together this morning. We were on vacation for a couple weeks, and you know, we all do a weird thing when one of our coworkers comes back from vacation. You know what you say? Say, aren't you glad to be back? No. <laughs> I mean, I love it here, but I prefer being on vacation and on the beach and swimming and not working. But I am glad to be with you guys this morning. And maybe we're working some things out. Microphone, are we good, Michael? Okay, perfect. So today is not only the 12th Sunday in this little season that we've been calling Summertime, but it is also our final Sunday in this season. Next Sunday, we're going to be kicking off a new season one which Pete is going to tell you more about, but it is the season of creation. This has been a more recent addition to the church calendar by many of our uh, more liturgical brothers and sisters around the world, and we thought we would jump on board as well as we continue to deepen our commitment and awareness of the importance of caring for the rest of creation as a part of our spiritual formation. So we'll have four weeks of that starting next Sunday, which will aptly include our time up at Big Lake. 
If you've been with us this summer, you know that we have spent this entire season in the book of Genesis. We started at the beginning. We talked about the first creation account in Genesis 1. Uh, we looked at the second creation account, the fall, Cain and Abel, the flood, the Tower of Babel, the call of Abraham, Hagar and Ishmael, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Esau. And last week, we talked about Rachel and Leah. And so that got us through the first 30 chapters of Genesis, which means I have today to wrap up the remaining 20 chapters. So I hope you went to the bathroom before you got here. We're going to be a little while. Uh, if you remember from way back in the beginning, we said that Genesis is split into two main chunks, chapters 1 through 11, that's known as the primeval history, and then chapters 12 through 50 is known as the story of the patriarchs. In the second section of Genesis, the recurring theme is this, that there are these big, famous characters that, that we know as the patriarchs, and they keep messing up. They keep failing, they keep falling short, but in the midst of their failure, God remains faithful. No matter how much they screw up, God is faithful to them and to his people. I know Pete showed a family tree a few weeks ago, so we're going to add on to it for how we got to our text today. Uh, we started there at the top with Abraham, and where we remember that God promised that all of the families of the earth would be blessed through him. Uh, we talked about Hagar. We offered you maybe a different perspective on Hagar than you've heard before. We discussed Ishmael and Isaac as Abraham's sons. And then uh, we get to Jacob, and you see there between four different wives, Jacob had 12 sons. Uh, the text also tells us that uh, Jacob has daughters, uh, plural, uh, but they don't ever really get mentioned other than Dina is one of them. Uh, so I guess Barbie was right. The patriarchy is real. Uh, it's totally overlooked in this story of the 12 tribes. So as we get to Joseph, which is highlighted there on the bottom, uh, he really is the main character of this final section of Genesis. And in this big picture narrative of Genesis, Joseph's story actually serves as a microcosm for the entire story. One commentator describes the Joseph story as Genesis breaking into full bloom, because it is in this narrative that we see the themes of this entire book come to life. As the narratives that happen here in Genesis and elsewhere in Scripture, they aren't just present to tell you this happened, then this happened, then this happened. They are not just a recording of events. They make a different claim. They say, look at the world like this. They don't just chronicle events, they configure them. They want you to see the world differently because of how these narratives are told. The details that are included are included for a reason. If you remember from week one, we said that these stories in Genesis may have been written down by a people in exile, exile trying to reclaim their heritage. So we'll use that prism as we view these texts today as well. Since we'll be covering the entire story of Joseph, a few background notes to get us up to speed. Uh, at the time of our story, Joseph is 17. We also learn uh, that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. So why is that? Maybe, uh, maybe you have a favorite child too. Uh, sometimes it can be explained, sometimes it can't, right? I'm not sure why I'm my parents' favorite, but I just am. Uh, for Jacob... Uh, it can be explained. So if we pull up that family tree one more time, I know it's kind of hard to read all of the names in the back, but again, Jacob had sons with four wives, Rachel, Leah, Zilpah, and Bilhah. If you remember uh, Linda's great sermon last week, Jacob originally wanted to marry Rachel. That was who he really loved, but uh, their father tricked him into marrying Leah first. 
And in their flight to bear sons for Jacob, uh, both sisters had Jacob conceived children with their maids, uh, Zilpah and Bilhah. Uh, in fact, Rachel bore Jacob no children until after Leah, Bilhah, and Zilpah had between them given birth to 10 sons. And we don't know how many other daughters. And so when Rachel... The woman that he truly loved all along, the one he wanted as his wife in the first place, finally conceived, she gave birth to Joseph. And then she died giving birth to Benjamin. So the beloved and favored wife of Jacob, the one he worked 14 years for, died after giving him two sons, the oldest of which was Joseph. That is why he is Jacob's favorite. He is the firstborn of his true love. And Jacob marks his favoritism for Joseph by giving him an ornate robe. We're not entirely sure what it looked like, but here's a picture of what it could have looked like. Yeah. So if you are a Broadway fan, you know that this is the amazing Technicolor dream coat as depicted in Seinfeld. And this may be a bit of an exaggeration, but whatever it looked like, it was a gift that only Joseph got and we know that it wasn't intended for manual labor. This set him apart as special, different. And so it's no surprise to learn this. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. This is a motif that we've seen throughout Genesis. If you remember back even to our Cain and Abel discussion, we said that older siblings would not look so good throughout Genesis and it's come true time and time again. Younger siblings have been shown favor, but unfortunately that favor has led to even greater hardship and sometimes even death. Joseph will go through this same experience. And that's not to say that Joseph is entirely innocent either. The, the first thing that we actually learn about Joseph is that he's a tattletale. Uh, he brings a bad report about his brothers and their shepherding skills to Jacob. And while it can be typical sibling behavior to think a parent prefers one child over another, you know, Jacob has no chill about it, right? You know, you 11 go work in the fields and you, Joseph, take this coat. You're too pretty to, you know, go work out in the fields. It's not a great idea to build those bonds of, of brotherly love. And if you remember the story, Joseph, he has two dreams. And the main point in each of the dreams that he has is that all of his brothers would bow down before him eventually. And I don't know uh, if Joseph is uh, clueless or if this is his kind of serious little brother energy, uh, but he tells his brothers who he already knows hate him about this dream. It seems like a really bad read of the room. I mean, had journaling not been invented yet? You don't tell your brothers who don't like you that they're all going to bow down before you. And so he seems to be taking full advantage of the favored status, uh, but Jacob even ends up rebuking him for these dreams. He may be living in the shadow of his brothers for now, but it's clear that Joseph has dreams of being the top dog just like his dad did when he was a younger brother as well. And as our text for today begins, Joseph has sent, uh, or Jacob has sent Joseph to check in on his brothers. That's not going to be the first time that I do that. And they are shepherding out in the fields. They are a long way from home, uh, but eventually Joseph finds them. And as he approaches them, uh, maybe they think he is going to tattle on them again, or maybe they just had enough of the whole situation. They decide they're going to kill him. So verse 19 says, here comes that dreamer 
they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Now, there are two perspectives on these dreams. For Joseph, his dreams indicate a future and a prospect to be celebrated. It's a promise to be kept that he is going to be in charge, that he is going to be the boss. For the brothers, Joseph's dreams articulate a future threat that must be resisted at all costs. Their logic goes like this. If we kill the dreamer, then the dreams can't come true, which I think is also the plot to the movie Minority Report, but I'm not sure. That's right, Tom Cruise. But as it turns out, not everyone was uh, okay with this plan. Reuben, the oldest child, he talks some sense in him. He tries to rescue Joseph, and it's still not a great plan or situation. We'll just throw him into a cistern. But uh, with this idea, uh, the brothers would be satiated at least a little bit. Joseph would have some time to learn his lesson, and then they could all move forward as a family. It's a you know, good big brother, oldest brother stuff, calm uh, right here. And when Joseph shows up, they, you know, they take his fancy jacket, they throw him in the cistern, and after all that hard work of tormenting their brother, they've worked up an appetite, so they sit down to have a meal. Apparently, Reuben uh, has left during this meal because Judah hatches a new plan, and it sure sounds like they never wanted to follow Reuben's plan anyway. In verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So we see that the brothers don't just eliminate Joseph as a problem, they make a profit off him. They sell him into slavery for 20 shekels of silver. Verse 29, Reuben returns to get Joseph out of the hole, but quickly finds out what the brothers have done. He tears his clothes. He's overcome with grief. And what do the other brothers do? Well, the text gives us nothing. There is no response from the other brothers other than to cover their crime. They never express remorse here. They take Joseph's coat, they cover it in blood, and they present it to Jacob as proof of Joseph's death. While they may not have Joseph's literal blood on their hands, they know that they have signed his death warrant. They want someone else to take care of that problem, and they are guilty of the crime. What will come to light eventually as the story progresses is that this guilt never leaves the brothers throughout this whole story. In Shakespeare's Macbeth, after Macbeth kills Duncan, he, he goes to Lady Macbeth with his hands covered in blood, and he's horrified with what he's done. And in a famous line, he says, will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? And the answer is no. And just like Macbeth, the brothers will realize that this guilt stays with them. They can't escape what they have done. So what happens in the rest of the story? You know the gist of it, but some of the high points rather quickly. Potiphar is the captain of Pharaoh's guard. He buys Joseph as a slave, and because the Lord is with him, he quickly rises to the head of Potiphar's house. Unfortunately, uh, Potiphar's wife takes an interest in Joseph. She tries to seduce him, and when he refuses, he is framed for trying to commit adultery with her and thrown in prison. And yet in prison, the Lord is with him, and the prison warden put him in charge of all the other prisoners. Uh, if you remember, there's a cupbearer, there's a baker, and eventually Pharaoh has a dream that needs interpreting, and Joseph is selected for this task. 
because the Lord was with him, he is able to interpret these dreams, which help Egypt prepare for a famine and saves the lives of countless people. So Joseph is raised up again. He's put in charge of all of Egypt. And during this famine, Joseph's brothers, minus Benjamin, one who had the same mom as him, make their way down to Egypt. And Joseph, he tests them a bit. They're put in prison for a couple days. They're questioned, and eventually they're told they must bring Benjamin back to Egypt to prove that they are telling the truth about their story. Joseph lays out one final test, putting a silver cup in Benjamin's bag, framing him as a thief, and claiming him as a slave because of his treachery. But here is where we see a change in the brothers. Judah says this, Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, in place of Benjamin, and let the boy return with his brothers. We'll come back and talk about why that's important. But Joseph finally makes himself known to his brothers, and they weep, and they embrace one another. They return home to fetch Jacob and the rest of the family, and they end up living in Egypt, riding out the famine, and living happily ever after. Kind of. Not at all. Uh, In the midst of the rest of this narrative, there are two main themes that come to the surface. And the first one is actually all about ups and downs. We heard this in the brief summary there, but it bears repeating. Joseph has several literal and metaphorical ascents and descents. He's put down into the pit. He's taken down to Egypt. He ascends to a position of authority in Potiphar's house, but descends to prison after false accusations rises again to a position of authority, but descends to prison one more time. The cupbearer finally remembers him. He's raised from the pit to the highest position possible for him in Egypt. Literally and metaphorically, he has experienced every up and down imaginable. But the second theme is this. In the midst of the ups and downs, there is one phrase that is repeated over and over, and that is the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him in the pit, In the prison, in the positions of authority, God was present with him no matter how high he ascended or how low he descended. But one thing we don't think about is how God was also with Joseph's brothers as well. God pursued them as they tried to hide their guilt. And as the brothers accept the tests from Joseph and and we hear Judah instead offer up himself in the place of Benjamin, they recognize that God has been caring for them all along too. God has been working in their lives and in their hearts and he's brought about a change in them. They've gone from being willing to kill and to sell their brother into slavery to being willing to give up their own lives in freedom to save another one of their brothers. It seems that Judah and the other brothers, they've changed over the course of their story. Gone is the intense hatred they once held for the favored son of their father. There's no hint that they envy or hate Benjamin now who holds that special place. They bear the guilt of what they did to Joseph, interpreting the trouble that they're experiencing as punishment for what they did long ago. Now they have matured over the course of these years apart and they are determined to save Benjamin. But all of this is only able to happen because of one thing, and that's forgiveness. Joseph offers them forgiveness in our Antioch language. We talk about reconciliation. When Joseph's brothers showed up in Egypt, it would have been very easy to treat him according to the law of mutual justice. 
You all tried to kill me. You sold me as a slave. I am going to do the exact same thing to you what you did to me. That's only fair. He had the might of Egypt at his back to do whatever he ordered them to do. But instead of choosing to treat them with this idea of mutual justice, Joseph chooses to treat them in line with the example of God's grace. Why is he able to do that? After all of what he has experienced, why is he able to do that? My hunch is it's because he is confident that God has been with him, even in his circumstances, even in his life, when it felt just like the opposite of God being present. In chapter 45, when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers for the first time, he says this, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into slavery in Egypt, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. That is some seriously aspirational maturity from Joseph right there. And in the next verse, he would go on to say, so then it was not you who sent me here, but God. Which stirs up all sorts of other theological questions, right? Why, why did God do this? If I was Joseph, I would be saying, you know, God, why would you do this to me, all that I went through? And we have to ask the question, is this how God works in the world? And Joseph offers more clarity in the last chapter of Genesis when he has one final statement to comfort his brothers who are still uh, afraid for his retribution once their father Jacob has passed. And he says this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph makes it clear that he doesn't attribute the brothers' sinful actions to God. God did not make them sin. God did not instruct them to do what they did to Joseph, to put him in the pit, to sell him into slavery. God did not tell them to do that. Joseph makes that clear. But what Joseph does affirm is that God was able to use those sinful actions for God's own good purposes. The brothers devised evil, but God turned it to good. That all along, God's intention was to preserve life, preserve the life of the family of Jacob, the lives of many people, including all of the Egyptians, everyone who would experience this famine. Joseph's presence in Egypt is the means by which God ensures that life will go on. <laughs> Reverend Dr. Carolyn Helsel, she is a pastor and a preaching professor, and she says this about what Joseph is able to do here at the end of the story. She says, this kind of integrative meaning making happens when we can accept the pain of the wounds of suffering and also see what positive contributions we have made in the world. Joseph did not have to deny the pain of what his brothers did to him to heal. By God's grace, he was able to see how the misfortune and injustice he experienced led him to a position of power and privilege where he could bring healing and justice to many people. What she is articulating here is that what we see in Joseph, it's not a shallow or a hokey, you know, everything happens for a reason cliche. 
but instead a raw experience that doesn't overlook the pain that he's gone through. There aren't cheap platitudes. He is able to acknowledge his hurt, his grief, his pain, where his life has sucked. But he is able to look backward after the fact and see all of it through a different prism because of the presence of God. This place of knowing that God has been with him through every up and down is the place where he is able to actually draw the ability to forgive his brothers. And this power that lies in forgiveness, it's a theme that comes up uh, in Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical Hamilton. Any fans out there? Yeah. So if you haven't seen it in person, you can always watch it on Disney+, Plus. not quite the same, uh, but still good. And uh, anyway, you know the story. It's about the life of Alexander Hamilton, one of our founding fathers. And I would give a spoiler warning, but this stuff happened like 250 years ago. So I think uh, the grace period is over. Uh, but late in the story, Hamilton has seriously uh, messed up. He committed adultery against his wife, Eliza, and they have just lost their son to death in a duel that was essentially instigated to protect Hamilton's reputation. He bears the blame for this. And in one of the most beautiful and tear-inducing songs of the show, it's called It's Quiet Uptown, it details Hamilton's efforts to make things right with Eliza. He knows that he doesn't deserve forgiveness. And the song, it crescendos, talking about how there are moments that words just don't reach, and that there is a grace too powerful to name until it finally says, forgiveness, can you imagine? Can you imagine the power of forgiveness? In contrast to so many of the other songs, the smooth-talking Hamilton, he doesn't seem to have the words to say because he can't fathom this grace that is too powerful to name that is found in forgiveness. Eliza forgives him, and they begin their journey of deep reconciliation together, and he probably doesn't deserve forgiveness. But forgiveness is rarely ever about what we deserve. If you remember when we started, we talked about how the narratives in scripture don't just give an account of things that happen, they're formulated so that we see the world differently. And in this story, which serves as a microcosm for the entire narrative of Genesis, it recognizes both the hiddenness of God and it also emphasizes the imminence of God. What I mean is that this story, it takes place between the hint of the dream that began it Joseph's dream of what was to come takes place between that and the doxology of his disclosure there in Genesis 50, that God was working all along. And as this narrative was told to its original audience who were living between the oldest promises of Israel and what God would do and what God had promised for them, and they were living between this other pole, the groans of the slaves anticipating their freedom, that as they lived in the middle, this story was meant to model these truths, that God is working all along, even when you can't see it. And because of that, the people of God are be a people that practice forgiveness. That even when it doesn't make sense, they were to continue the forgiving way of life and to seek reconciliation wherever necessary because it is an essential part of shalom. If this is where Genesis breaks into full bloom, it's because of this paradigm of grace and forgiveness. You know, forgiveness is so powerful, it's even recommended as a healthy lifestyle choice by the Mayo Clinic. 
They say, I looked this up. They say when you forgive someone, it can lead to improved mental health, less anxiety, fewer symptoms of depression, lower blood pressure, and improved heart health. It also has communal outcomes. It can change how entire groups of people relate to each other and allow people to move past revenge and to cooperation. In our story, we can ask the question, without Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers, do we get everything that comes after? If Joseph's favorite Bible verse was an eye for an eye, what happens in our story, right? There might not be 12 tribes. There might not be Judah, the tribe of Judah. There is no line of David. Where does the Messiah come from? The fulcrum of this story is whether Joseph will forgive or not, and this is what the original audience needed to hear. This is how they were to hear this narrative so that they would see the world differently and live differently because of it. Ultimately, for you and I, we would get to experience something that would come a little bit after Joseph's time, and that is the forgiveness and reconciliation that's found in Jesus. Forgiveness was one of Jesus' most often talked about topics, parables, practical advice, talking about how necessary it is to forgive, how often we are to do it. He said 70 times, seven times. Basically that we should be doing it all the time. It should be a part of our lives every single day. And theologian John Whitvlet puts it better than I ever could. He said, we don't forgive because it benefits us. Those benefits may be a welcome byproduct, but our motivation to forgive is rooted in God's call to forgive, our gratitude for God's forgiveness of us, and our desire to imitate Christ, the one who perfectly modeled forgiveness and even now perfects our efforts to practice forgiveness. So yes, all those personal health benefits are great. I want lower blood pressure. So is changing our community for the better, but ultimately we are to forgive because Christ first forgave us. It's not just something that we do as followers of Jesus, it is who we are. It's an essential part of our everyday work of taking up our crosses, just as it was for those ancient Israelites. Forgiveness and our commitment to forgive should make us different from the world should make us stand out. It should be our defining characteristics of how we have relationships. It should be how we enter into the world. Unfortunately, we're not great at it. I'm not great at it. It's not top of the list of what we are known for as Christians here in America. And yet, I remain hopeful for a better way because I believe that a revolution that starts with the people committed to living the Jesus way the way of forgiveness, the way of humility, the way of reconciliation, the way of laying down your life, even for those whom you vehemently disagree with, is coming. And it starts with you and me, and it starts with us offering forgiveness in our own lives to our spouses, to our friends, to our kids. Sometimes those closest to us are the hardest ones for us to forgive. Maybe it's to our coworkers. Maybe it's to the guy who drives too slow or the jerk who cuts you off, right? To your former boss that you've been holding it against them for a long time. To your ex, to that friend who you don't see anymore because it hasn't been the same since they did that one thing. To the person who voted differently than you and it's all their fault that your candidate lost. Or to the politician that you didn't vote for. To the person you just saw trash on the ground and litter 
That one works in my heart, right? It's up to us to practice forgiveness. No matter who it is, no matter how hard it is, or no matter how undeserving it feels, we must choose forgiveness because the way of Jesus is not about being right all the time or fixing other people, and it's not about deserving forgiveness either. It's about emulating Jesus' complete commitment to forgiveness, even when it means losing the upper hand. And that's hard, and I am bad at it. But I am committed to doing it with each one of you because we have to ask ourselves these questions. What if my choosing to forgive is a part of the advancing of the kingdom of God? Because that's what happened here in our story, that Joseph's willingness to forgive advanced the kingdom of God in huge ways. Or better yet, who can I forgive today as we work towards the reconciliation of all things? We might not make it to all things if I can't reconcile my own relationships with each other's. So who in your life do you need to forgive? It could be a long time, could be just yesterday, could be a group of people, it could be a way of thinking. How can forgiveness enter your life today? Because what we see in the story of Joseph is that forgiveness and reconciliation are essential parts of building the kingdom of God that Christ inaugurated and will be eventually completed in the reconciliation of all things that we offer a foretaste when we forgive. And just like in this story, we may not see God's hand at work all the time. He may feel distant or like he's not even there at all. But when we model forgiveness, we are saying that we trust that God is working in the midst of this situation and will take evil intentions and bad things and use them for good. That God is working to preserve life and working towards shalom. That maybe, It's in forgiveness that our faith breaks out into full bloom as well. So, Antioch family, may our defining characteristic be that we are a people of forgiveness. Amen.